Well, good morning. My name is Tom, and I'm an elder here at LAFC. How are you all doing today? Okay, we can work with that. Uh, try to get Matt to get you all stirred up, but we're going to have to use Scripture to do it, I guess. Um, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, today we are going to be getting into the what's called the Ten Words, or the more commonly known as the Ten Commandments, after a few weeks of preparing for this. Now, R.C. Sproul describes the Ten Commandments as expressions of the eternal moral values of God that transcend the Old Testament and the New Testament. And these can be found in Exodus chapter 20. So if you have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, our ushers are coming down the aisles here with a Bible for you. But if you would just go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be turning there in a minute to begin to read uh, God's law. Now, this concept of law has been something that I've been thinking about a little bit more the last couple of years because my kids have been learning about uh, American law in their school, their elementary school kids. So they've learned about uh, things like elections and rights and voting. They even had a mock election in one of their classes where my daughter was elected president of her first grade class. Pretty cool. She broke through the glass ceiling, right? <laughs> Very exciting, very exciting. Um, but you know, all of this education has sort of been a double-edged sword, double sword for us because it has raised a lot of questions in our home. Specifically, is that if there's so many good things about democracy, then why does it seem like our home operates more like a dictatorship? <laughs> Right? Fair question. You know, they're also learning math, unfortunately, and you know, three kids, two parents. It doesn't seem like the majority has very much influence in our home. But what they weren't aware of is that if our home had a constitution, one of its articles would say something like, my house, my rules. <laughs> and the last few weeks, we've been talking about how rules can tell us things about the rule giver. All right, so I've got rules that are meant for protecting my kids. I've also got rules that help me get an afternoon nap. So both of these will tell you things about me as a father. Um, now, we're going to be using a fair amount of fatherly imagery this morning. And before we get going, I realize that having a good earthly father is not a reality for many. So if that happens to be you, I just want you to consider these words from the theologian Bavink before we get into our text today. And he says this, God is our father and all fatherhood on earth is but a distant and vague reflection of the fatherhood of God. God is father in the true and complete sense of the term. Okay, so that said, we've got two things we're going to try and accomplish here together this morning. The first is, is that as we look at the first two commandments, we want to leave with an understanding of what they mean. So if, our, if we want to look through the law to the lawgiver, then we need to understand what the laws mean. That's our first goal. Second one is, we want to know how are we supposed to respond to these things. You know, these words were written to a different people at a different time thousands of years ago. And so how are we in the 21st century supposed to respond to this? So that's our two goals. We want to understand and we want to know how to respond. So I'm going to open up here, Exodus chapter 20. And these are words that God literally spoke to his people, Israel. And so when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask if you're thankful for it to simply reply by saying, 
Thanks be to God. Can we do that? Chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So let's take a moment to get our bearings as to where we're coming in in the story of Israel here. These words come at a pivotal time for them. You see, about seven weeks before this was spoken, God rescued them through mighty works out of the land of slavery in Egypt, where they had been for almost 400 years. He is bringing them out of Egypt and into his house out of a house of slavery and into the household of God. Now, God knows that like adopted children who have lived their whole life somewhere else, and in this case, generations elsewhere, they might not understand his laws. Or maybe more importantly, they might not understand his heart behind the laws. So as a gracious father, what he does is he tells them. And we actually see this just one chapter back. If you still have your Bibles open to chapter 20, just flip back one page to chapter 19, where God says this through his servant Moses to his people, starting in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So before articulating the laws, God explains the new identity that they will receive as his children. This is his heart for them. And then the law, what the law will do, will help them understand how they're supposed to live this out. And it came in three parts. The first part is they're learning that in this new reality they're being brought into, under God's authority, and out of everything that is under God's authority in all the earth, which is everything and everyone, they will be to him a treasured possession. So Israel has gone from just seven weeks before despair to being distinguished. Second, they have been given freedom with a mission Now, for those of you who might know either teenagers heading into college or maybe recent retirees who have been given a lot of freedom but no purpose, we know this isn't always a good thing. (laughs) So God gives them freedom with a purpose, and that purpose is to be a kingdom of priests, and a priest being one who knows God well enough to declare his praises and bring others closer to him. Okay, so what this means, it's sort of like he's bringing them out of a dark orphanage of slavery and into his home, which is like a Biltmore estate with all of its many blessings. They are his treasured possession, but he still has those in the orphanage he wants to rescue, and so they are given the mission to go back and tell his other children about him. 
That's a priest. They have a mission to the nations. Third, we see that through his people, God is restoring humanity's broken identity, the identity of those who have been made in the image of God. Now, we know that at the fall, this identity was fractured and it was distorted, but through him, in him, he is going to be working to restore this identity in his people, Israel. They will be holy as he is holy, and the commandments will show them how to do this. So now this is true freedom, to live as a treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, and as a holy nation. But after 400 years in slavery, they don't know how to do this. So God gives them the law, which is where we come in to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Reading this again, God says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's important we don't skim past this. We said we're going to try and understand what these things mean. For instance, this word before can be easily misunderstood because it brings to mind other rules we might have lived under over the course of our lives, such as no snacks before dinner or no playing outside until or before you finish your homework. Okay, But I don't think that what God is trying to say here is that you need to eat your sandwich before your Snickers. No, he is using the word before in a much different sense. It's more like bringing a witness before a judge. In other words, into the presence of. Now, it's easy to jump straight to what the prohibition side of this command means. Okay, But I don't want us to miss the good news that's implied in the command. If Israel needs a rule that helps them understand how they are to conduct themselves in the presence of God, then where should they expect to find themselves? They should expect to find themselves in the presence of God. So they have received in this an identity, a mission, and this great blessing of knowing that they are going to be able to live in the presence of God. But there's a problem. God is holy. Therefore, everything in his presence must be holy, which by definition excludes other gods. Hopefully you can start to see the heart and the need for the first commandment. Later on, a few chapters further in Exodus, God reveals his heart for his people more explicitly. If you flip ahead to chapter 29 of Exodus, in verse 46, God says this to his people. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. There's the heart. God dwelling again among mankind. Can you recall the last time this would have been true in Scripture? I'm going to give you a hint. It's in Genesis. He is beginning to restore what was lost at the fall. He is going to dwell again with his treasured possession. But to be in his presence, they must be holy. So when we consider then 
What does, this, what does this mean? What does this look like then to, if they were to bring other gods into his presence? Scripture is not short on imagery to help us understand just how vile God views this as being. In fact, most of the imagery we can't really use here on a Sunday morning. I've chosen the most PG version that I could find. My kids are here, so this, is, this has been vetted. This comes from Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 likens bringing um, gods into the presence of God to a wife who after entering into the marriage covenant with her husband and receiving many good things from him goes out and becomes a prostitute. And not only that, she begins to believe that all of these good things that she has received have come from her many lovers. So she is not only breaking the marriage covenant, but she's also living a lie. Scripture views idolatry as being wicked, totally vile. But then we must ask the question, well, who are these other lovers? Who are these other gods that are being prohibited from the presence of God? Well, Scripture gives us basically two answers to this. There's two ways, two right ways to understand this. The first answer that Scripture gives is other deities, so in the land that they're coming from out of Egypt was a polytheistic land where they had many gods represented by many idols. In the land that Israel is headed, in Canaan, very much the same thing. Maybe you've heard of the Baals. And even as we get into the first century church, Roman culture, very similar. And much of our world today still worships and bows down to other deities which are often represented by idols, physical idols, which is why our, the second commandment, God says, you're not to make an image of anything for an aid in worship because it'll do either one of two things for you. One, you will misrepresent the true God or it will cause you to worship false gods. So he says, no images in worship. Now, the second way to understand this question, what is a God, is a little bit, more difficult to picture, but scripture is still very clear about this from cover to cover. It's what Ezekiel calls um, idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. You see this in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament as well. I'm going to read some words here. In Ephesians 5.5, 5, Paul calls the greedy person an idolater. And in Philippians 3.19, he rebukes the one whose God is their stomach. Okay, so not things made of stone or wood or metal. Although I know some of you think you have abs of steel. You know, I do my crunches too. Uh, but but this, is, this is something not, this is not physical, right? Greed, hunger, not things that are physical. Heart idols can be more difficult for us to identify than ones that are represented by physical idols. But perhaps, as we discussed this this morning, maybe there's some similarities between the two. This is a question I've been wrestling with, talking with a few of our pastors, talking with missionaries, some of our missionaries who have served in cultures that have, uh, that actually continue to worship deities through physical idols, and also some of our teachers who have taught through Exodus. And most of them look to the second commandment for insight to try and find these similarities, specifically verse five of the second commandment, which says that to worship something or to treat it as having more worth than God is what can turn something from like an image or food or money into a God. 
So then, one might conclude that as long as we aren't worshiping these things, we aren't breaking the first or the second commandment. Now this morning, as we begin to pivot from looking at Israel to try and understand this for ourselves, one of the things that I'm aware of is that worship, at least as we understand worship, might not be our best diagnostic tool for identifying idols because we can sing and honor God with our lips and our hearts can be far from him. We can look faithful on the outside and yet have our hearts be prostituting themselves out to other gods. And my prayer this morning is that nobody would leave under this same sort of ignorance. So I think a better way for us to identify false gods in our lives is to look for anything that promises to give us a treasure. Now stick with me here for a moment. When I say treasure, I'm talking about treasure in the sense that Jesus does when he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so a God is something that promises to give you that treasure. So a few examples to help bring this home. The Egyptians treasured fertility, rain and sun for crops. They treasured health. They treasured security. And as a result, they worshiped gods that promised to give them those things. And as I talk with some of our missionaries who serve in, in cultures today that are still like this, they say the same thing. People are worshiping these gods in order to receive something back, something that their heart treasures. Now in the West, where the demonic strategy is perhaps a bit more stealthy, we no longer are tempted to worship deities per se, but more the products of men. Let me give you a few examples. The God of education promises the treasures of control, income, and reputation. Food promises comfort and escape. The God of productivity promises self-worth. Good works promises righteousness. Wealth promises control, comfort, and status. Beauty promises affirmation. Science promises peace and safety. Medical advancement promises health and control. Sexuality falsely promises pleasure as well as identity. And our various political ideologies are sort of like gods over gods under which these other ones might thrive. So as you can see, our false gods can take many different forms which feel familiar and harmless because they're so interwoven into our culture which is much like physical idols were for Israel. I hope this helps you understand a bit about their struggle. So how did Israel deal with their, with their idols? Well, if you have any familiarity, familiarity with the Old Testament, the answer is not so good. Right? I'm going to read a passage here that pretty much just represents what you find all across the Old Testament. This is from Ezekiel. This is at a time where the, the elders of Israel came to Ezekiel, and they were hoping to receive a good word from God, from God through Ezekiel. We're in chapter 16 here, of, or 14 of Ezekiel, starting in verse 3. God says this to these elders, through Ezekiel. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts 
and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for idols. So when the father says that he will answer them according to their great idolatry, what he's saying is the same thing that any good and loving father would say to an older child who after every form of training and discipline fails to respond to the direction of the father refuses to obey the rules of the house? What is the last resort of a loving father to try to recapture the heart of the child? Kicks them out. Kicks them out, not out of spite, but so that by experiencing the world, which operates by a very different set of rules, they might learn by contrast to understand the goodness of the house and the goodness of the house rules and the goodness of the rule giver. And we see this is what happens with Israel. Israel totally fails at keeping the first two commandments. And what we call kicking out of the house in the Old Testament is exile. Look at me this morning though. Are we doing any better? Remember, the primary issue of the first commandment isn't one of priority. This isn't about putting God first, as many well-intentioned Bible teachers have taught over the years. He isn't looking to just be the top among many things. We have been brought into an exclusive covenantal relationship with the Lord. We have a word that describes the way that we, in, in our time, both individually and corporately as a church, tend to violate the first commandment. And that word is syncretism. Now, syncretism is like having a sink full of clean water and then dumping your dirty dishes into it. You still have water, but it's no longer clean and pure. When you mix other things into Christianity, you still have religion, but it's no longer the Christian religion. It's no longer pure and holy. That's syncretism. Our temptation is often not abandoning God, but putting our trust in God and other things. Rebecca McLaughlin says this. In biblical terms, Idolatry is almost never about worshiping other gods instead of Yahweh. It's about worshiping other gods at all. If Jesus is the add-on to your life to give you a bit of spiritual lift, you do not know him. He wants our worship, not our spare time. To see if we're getting this, I'm going to ask you a question, but it's going to require a little bit of setup. There is an older man living in India Worshiping at the Shidangum Temple, which is a beautiful and colorful temple, considered to be one of the largest Hindu temples in the world. It's covered by statues representing all different kinds of deities and contains over 50 shrines. And he spends his day bowing down and worshiping over a dozen gods. 
On the same day, there is a young woman worshiping at an evangelical church. She is worshiping with passion this week because she feels freed from those nagging feelings of inadequacy. You see, this week she's read her Bible and prayed almost every single day. She even volunteered in Kidman. So she, know, she is almost feeling free from those feelings of guilt that she typically carries around. Also, she's feeling more free and less fearful for the future for her kids because a local school board decision recently went her way. So of these two, who is guilty of idolatry? Now, my hope is that you got the first one. The guy worshiping at the Hindu temple, if you don't, he's literally bowing down to idols. So if you're not able to get that one, I probably failed you this morning. You should ask someone for your money back. Um, this, this one's pretty clear. But are you able to see the gods that the woman is serving? Are you able to see the idolatry in her heart? Do you see the internal conflicts within her with the ebbing of flowing of guilt based on her personal performance? This is a sign that she is serving the false god of good works. In Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this about making a god even of good things. He says, making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral rectitude, in other words, good works, leads to constant internal conflict, arrogance and self-righteousness, and oppression of those whose views differ. In other words, sinful attitudes and conflicts within our hearts are two of the best tools we have to identify idols that are in our heart. And we looked at this in depth a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 7. Similarly, in this example, we see fear rising and falling based on the decisions of policymakers. Now, hear me on this. It is okay and good to want good things for our kids and to want a good future for our kids, but the response of her heart is showing that she is trusting in the God of the state more than she's trusting in the God who made the state. So if you're sitting here this morning wondering, how do you know if you're keeping the first two commandments or if you've fallen into some kind of syncretistic version of Christianity? You need only answer one question. What do you treasure? So I ask you, what do you treasure? If your answer is anything created, then you've fallen into idolatry. There is only one treasure worth pursuing, and that is God himself found in Jesus Christ. Our God is the only God who is both God and treasure. His promise is himself. Our hearts are to be set on him alone. And if this seems too exclusive or too high a standard, then let me read you these words from Jesus. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. 
Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus also says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, now this is relative to our love for God. He's putting this treasure in a category by itself. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. If this is all true, who can possibly keep the first two commandments? There's only been one. In the wilderness... Jesus was tempted by a false god with a, with a wonderful treasure. And the false god was Satan himself, who brought Jesus, it says, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said, all of this I will give to you. Now this is everything that Christ came to save and redeem and it's being promised without the cross. What a treasure but it came with a condition, and it's the same condition that every false god will eventually demand of us. Satan says, all of this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now, our Lord Jesus knows exactly what's going on in this moment. 40 days without food, and he is still keenly aware that what the great tempter is tempting him with is the same thing that tripped up his people time and time again, the temptation to serve a false god in order to receive a false promise. Idolatry is not a new issue. And Jesus doesn't need a new response, which is why he quotes himself in responding. That's a baller move. He responds with words that he spoke generations before through the law to Israel from the same chapter he quotes earlier in his life where he summarizes the entire law, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he, in his response to Satan, he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, no other gods. Brothers and sisters, in this moment, Jesus defeats a temptation greater than any we will possibly face in order to give us the assurance that in him we too can wield the word of truth and gain victory over the false gods that have so entangled themselves in our hearts and in our church. In his humanity, Jesus shows us that we can have victory in him. And can you believe he does more than this? Earlier, we read from Ezekiel that the judgment for idolatry was exile. But Ezekiel also gave a promise. This is in Ezekiel 36. Because remember, God's purpose was to recapture the heart of his people. So in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, God says this. For I will take you out of the nations, meaning out of exile, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, they are promised salvation and sanctification through Jesus Christ. And again in Jeremiah 31, different prophet, same words. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Who is the initiator and the fulfiller of our obedience? Who does our victory over idolatry ultimately depend on? Look at what it says. He will cleanse us of our impurities. He will cleanse us of our idols. He will do it through the spirit in us, the spirit of Christ. He will cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. He will put his law in our minds and he will write it on our hearts. Our heavenly father will do for us what our earthly parents never could. When he brings us into his home, he will also cause us to obey his rules. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. This is the same thing we've been preaching the last few weeks from Romans 7, that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not by the written code. Holiness is still the call, but we pursue it not by our own power or our own works, but by faith in God and through the spirit who he's given us in Christ. Why do you think we need to pray without ceasing? Peter declares that the identity of God's people has not changed since he gave it in Exodus 19. These are words from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says to the church now, to the church, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Like the Israelites, we are God's special possession because we have been set free from slavery to sin so that now our communal identity is that of a holy nation. So I guess my application this morning is twofold. The first one is to pursue holiness. Holiness is still our aim. Together in him, we are to flee idolatry and seek purity in our relationships. Together in him, we must fight through repentance to purify the church from syncretism. The syncretism that seeks to pollute the church into irrelevance. And the second point is to go and be priests. You know, in our darkening world, we look back to the idolatrous cultures of the past, and what we see is that it's not primarily the pastor or the evangelist that God uses to bring people to himself. It is his kingdom of priests. That is our call. That is our mission, to be a kingdom of priests to the people around us. So when we come here, we encourage one another to flee idolatry 
And then together declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light, out of slavery, that we might be a kingdom of priests who know God well enough to declare his praises to our oikos and bring others closer to him. We could declare his praises right now. Would you please stand and respond by singing the praises of him who has brought us out of the darkness of slavery to sin and into his family? Out of the silence, the 
Egypt, God showed his power with 10 strikes that showed his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt and one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. In Revelation 15, we read of a future time when God's wrath will be complete and his victory over sin and death and, and every false god will be done. And at that time, it says that God's people will sing the song of his servant Moses and of the Lamb. God declares the end for the beginning. So between the first and the final victory, uh, we, we're going to leave you here today with these words that, that Joshua spoke over the people of Israel as they entered into the promised land. And they say this, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors that they serve beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Americans, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So if you are feeling enslaved to a false God this morning, but you are ready to serve the Lord alone, we have a room full of priests who will pray with you. We also have some in the encounter room, or you can come up front. Otherwise, go in peace and serve the Lord this week. You are dismissed.